Welcome to episode 234 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. This is the episode before I take my traditional August break. So for August, we'll be playing some um, encore episodes for you because I'm very European, you know. I've got to take August off, refresh, reboot, and get focused for the next season of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And we're ending this season with a great, great conversation with acclaimed poet, professor, and publisher, Philip Brady. And we talk with Philip about his influences, when he knew he was a poet, some of uh, the ideas behind his writing, his process. Also, we talk about memorizing, or more aptly put, as, as he told me, knowing things, knowing poems and pieces by heart. We talk about incredible teachers, and uh, he shares one of his own poems, as well as poems of some of his favorite poets, too, and uh, also gives a little insight, some suggestions to uh, poets around the world. Great conversation with acclaimed poet Philip Brady on today's program. We also have an essay by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, also known as Uncle Cesare, and this essay is entitled The Librarian. We have an EW essay by yours truly titled The Gong and a poem titled Porno Stunt. And all of this, of course, as is always the case, is ensconced within several great tunes. It's nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 234 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Anger, he smiles, towering in shiny metallic purple armor. Queen jealousy envy waits behind him. Her fiery green gown sneers at the grassy ground. Blue are the life-giving waters taken for granted. They quietly understand. Once happy turquoise armies lay opposite ready, but wonder why the fight is on. But they're all bonus love. Yeah. They're all bonus love. Yeah. They're all love. Just ask the axes. Any flashes, trophies of war And ribbons of euphoria Orange is young, full of daring But very unsteady for the first go-round My yellow in this case is not so mellow In fact, I'm trying to say It's frightening like me And all of these emotions of mine Keep tolling me from uh, Giving my life to a rainbow like you But I'm a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm bold, bold as love. Hear me talk, girl. I'm bold, 
senses He knows everything Asphalt dystopia revels in the freedom of capitalism. We the people are foolishly educated on thin myths of great men and subservient or evil women, thus confounding us to the distempered sense of unfulfillment because our instincts, somewhat intact still, interpret a tale that we can tell doesn't add up. String along with the Jesus happy sing-along, high on the Holy Spirit, or maybe hit a bong and ignore the gong, warning of the deeply wrong action of humans who have lost their souls and don't fear it. What of this critical talk I diatribe while I can, being still here alive, I'm certain there are those who are confounded, confused, insulted, amused, in awe or guffaw, see it as immature folly or perhaps as a high-minded, insightful prospectus of a plan that might resonate with Nadima, Chin, Shakima, Luis, Ahmed, Tony, Lou, Lizzie, Angela, and two Stand the man. 
subjective it all is, I suppose, as this human, heterosexual, Mediterranean, Northeastern, American male tries to understand and propose.
Hello, uh, Philip Brady. That's me. Thank you, sir, for being on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. E.W. Conundrum here. Oh, how are you? Um, yes, I'm delighted to be on your show. Thank you very much for calling E.W. And uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I am as well. Let, let me start by giving some of our listeners a little background, and then uh, we'll hop right into our questions. All right? Yes. First of all, Dr. Philip Brady is an acclaimed poet, a professor, and he's the executive director at Etruscan Press out of uh, Wilkes University. And his most recent book is To Banquet with the Ethiopians, a memoir of life before the alphabet by Broadstone Books, by heart, reflections of a Rust Belt bard, University of Tennessee Press won a Forward Magazine gold medal. And Phantom, a collection of poems, appeared from WordTech Press. Philip's memoir, To Prove My Blood, A Tale of Emigrations and the Afterlife, appeared from Ashland Poetry Press in 2003. And Wheel, Ashland Poetry Press, 2000 was the 1999 winner of the Snyder Prize from Ashland Poetry Press. Maxine Kuhn chose his first book, Forged Correspondences from New Myths in 1996 for Plowshares Editor's Shelf. Mr. Brady also co-edited, co-edited with James F. Karen's critical essays on Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man in 1998. Philip earned his B.A. from Bucknell University, M.A.s from the University of Delaware and San Francisco State University, and a Ph.D. from Binghamton University. He has won an Ohioan Ohioan Poetry Award, six Ohio Arts Council Individual Artist Awards, Thayer and Newhouse Fellowships from New York State, and residencies at Yadu, the Headland Center for the Arts, the Ragdale Foundation, the Hambridge Center, the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, the Tyrone Guthrie Center in Ireland, the Fundación Valparaiso in Spain, the Hawthornden Castle in Scotland, and the Soros Center for the Arts in Czech Republic. Brady has taught at the National University of Zaire, University College Cork, and on semester at sea. Currently, Philip is a professor of English at Youngstown State University, where he directs the YSU Poetry Center and plays in the new Celtic band Brady's Leap. He also serves on the Low Residency MFA faculty of Wilkes University. And as I mentioned, he's the executive director at Etruscan Press. Thank you so much for being on the program. That's a pretty impressive bio. Well, thank you, E.W. It's been a good life so far. (laughs) And uh, let's get started with um, some of your influences as a writer and how you became, in your mind, when did you know, this is what I want to do, I'm a poet? Uh, Well, that's a great question. Um, And I, for me, I grew up with, with, with two kinds of language that were very strange to me, and they were out of my ken. They were out of my neighborhood, which was Queens, New York. Um, one of them was my parents are Irish, and they had a whole raft of, of albums, especially the, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem 
and I would sit in front or uh, actually kneel in front of the, of the cabinet hi-fi in our house and rock back and forth and listen to this strange language which was full of things I had no idea about, like the she and the... Uh, uh, the uh, hosting of the she and the the uh, leprechauns and and, and uh, all sorts of different kinds of of creatures and sounds and many of the times I couldn't decipher what was being said at all and sometimes I couldn't even tell the difference uh, between the nonsensical diddly eyes and the real syllables and the other was the Latin mass I was an altar boy and once again learning these syllables that are not communicative, but they are utterances. And I think, I don't think I assigned the word poet to, to those formative experiences, but when I look back, I think that that's the passage, the passage between uh, using language merely to communicate and, uh, make, and making of language a three-dimensional artifact that has power not just to communicate a, a state of being uh, that may exist but actually power to change one's mind to make and, re and remake one's mind and for me poetry is that act of, of making and remaking uh, the shape of one's own mind through the agency of rhythmic utterance wow i like that i like that and when you're making and remaking do you ever find yourself uh Inventing words. Certainly not uh, inventing, borrowing, changing, uh, you know, all sorts of things. I love, for instance, you know, phrases like Seamus Heaney's, uh, the frond lip rhinestone glut of privilege. You know, and when, when Seamus would say that, he'd look up from his poem and say, try translating that into French. <laughs> you know, it's so embedded deeply in the language. And I know that many, when I, when I did start to read literary poetry, uh, I found myself drawn to those mysterious places where the words themselves uh, begin to take on that, that otherness. You know, I think, of, uh, I think of a Yeats poem, for instance, uh, The Statues, you know, where uh, uh, he says, um, you know, Pythagoras planned it. Why did the people stare? His numbers, though they moved, are seen to move in marble or in bronze, lack character. And then he goes on later and, you know, he says, uh, uh, empty eyeballs knew that uh, knowledge increases unreality, that mirror on mirror mirrored is all the show. When Gong and Conch declare the hour to bless, the Malkin calls to Buddha's emptiness. And I had no idea when I was reading that as a young man what any of that really meant. <laughs> you know? And and it was uh, it wasn't until years later that I looked it up. I found a Grimalkin is just the name of a cat. So <laughs> I had imposed all sorts of, of phantom meanings on that. And and I think that making up language, making up words, and allowing uh, words to to pass through their many iterations in your in your mind and in your mouth is is again that's a, a touchstone uh for me so yeah words as we as we experience them on the page are just really the result of this process they're not iconic themselves they're merely uh a kind of record of what was 
of what was once breath. And, and it, it seems it seems to me that I, I don't think you're sitting there with uh, a bunch of sheets of paper or books to read what you're reciting. It seems to me you you, you memorize uh, a lot of these. Do you, do you find is that the truth, and, and is that important to you? It is the truth, E.W., and um, in fact, I'm walking right now in my house, so <laughs> I don't have, a, don't have paper in front of me, and, uh, and is it important? Well, you know, you use the word memorize, and I know that if, you, if, if you're like me, that, that word has a slightly scholastic and maybe even negative connotation, yes. you know, the idea of, of uh, you know, I, it's, it's the kind of thing the nuns would assign when you uh, when you needed to be punished, and I prefer what you know. You mentioned my book by heart, and I and I think I prefer thinking of it that way. Thinking not of memorizing something, some act that that is uh, perhaps assigned to you by others um, and and done by rote, but instead learning something by heart. Uh, and why is it important? Well, for one thing, it's that part of that act of reshaping your mind. And for another thing, it's getting the palm off the page so that you can actually be walking or going to sleep or in a conversation or, God forbid, in an English department committee meeting <laughs> and still be uh, half entranced in, in that other word. And finally, it's participation. Like when you read a poem, it's almost like going to a store and browsing. You know, you're browsing the poem. But when you learn it by heart, you've really committed to that poem. And you begin to know the poem in a very, very different way. Uh, and in fact, I, to quote a teacher of mine, uh, Jerome Rothenberg, he said, I write those poems which I have not found elsewhere and for whose existence I feel a deep need. And when he says that, what I hear is the fact that he's participating in the tradition and that po poems that have come to him from elsewhere are part of his own creative process. And I think one of the best ways of permeating our own selfhood and our own authorship and taking other poems into that creative process is by spending the commitment and the time to learn them uh, utterance by utterance, syllable by syllable, and then to think of them as part of your own repertoire. Yeah, and I, that's a great way of putting it. And uh, I suppose then your, the context from which you, you write and you think becomes more dynamic and, and more literally well-versed. I, I, I love that phrase, well-versed. I hadn't thought of that, but that's that's really what we're talking about, being to be well-versed. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, great. I'm honored that I said something that uh, someone of your experience finds, uh, finds uh, beneficial. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I'm very uh, much into hearing you maybe recite one of your own poems uh, when you f see fit during our conversation. But first, I, you know, tell, tell me more. Tell us more, if you would, about some of your... Your favorites, yeah, you know the the folks that you tend to go back to over and over again. Well, I I mean I grew up I think 
with Yeats was the poet that I uh, was, was most deeply engaged in. And I, you know, I say this to my students, I say there's really two poets that you should read uh, deeply. And one is choose someone or have, it's not so much a choice as it as winds up uh, being uh, an encounter, which is, which becomes, you know, it becomes uh, uh, deeply embedded in your consciousness. And, uh, and you should read everything by that poet. And that poet should be someone who's dead so that you can actually see the arc of a life. And for me, that was Yeats. Uh, and for, obviously for, for many, many people, that, that, that towering poet of the 20th century uh, who took us through, in many ways, uh, the process from the lyric romantics. Yeats says, I was, you know, we were the last romantics, he said. But also, of course, becomes, in a sense, even though he wouldn't have used the term, he becomes a modernist poet and, and blends uh, a new kind of speech with um, metrical uh, traditions. So it was Yeats. And the second poet that I think everybody ought to read more intensely than, than perhaps sometimes we do is, is ourselves. You know, I think, E.W., I think of, of, of my own work and I'm, you know, to the point where I can almost be retrospective about it. And I look back and I, I'm in dialogue with, with work that I may have written 20 or 30 years ago, not to rewrite it necessarily, um, but, but merely to hear that voice so that in some sense one's whole life is present uh, right now. So Yeats was the first person. I, had, I also, I, I might add, I was really blessed with some incredible teachers. Um, I was privileged to have uh, a class with uh, James Wright, um, and also with Galway Cannell, uh, who was, a, you know, these were these were poets who taught at the time uh, at the University of Delaware, and I was there for an MA, and um, W. D. Snodgrass, you know, so I had I took courses from from wow. those three uh, uh, incredible poets, and, uh, and I was I was a young man, and they were. They were younger than I am now, uh, so ta you know, thinking of them and, and having those those presences, uh, and then going to their work and finding the depth of that work that resonates. I have to mention too, um, my my first great teacher, uh, Jack Wheatcroft, who unfortunately recently passed away, um, and Jack was a, a professor at Bucknell, and just to give you a sense <clears throat> of how these things. Um, percolate and connect and entwine over generations. I had the privilege as, as uh, director of Etruscan Press to publish the selected works of John Wheatcroft. Mm -hmm. So I would publish my old mentor and, uh, and what a wonderful way that was for me to enter into that, that tradition, as I say, uh, in, a, in a very real way and distribute and honor uh, his life's work. And um, t t would you tell us a bit about your writing process? And we'll get into teaching too. But how how does that go for you? Is it the same every time, or are you, do, do things come out and arrange themselves differently from time to time? Um, well, very differently. And I'm usually engaged in different kinds of projects. And I just you know, I uh, I began when you asked earlier. You were asking about well, when did you know you were a poet? For me, I was in my mid twenties. And uh, I had loved poetry, as I, you know, from from uh, a young age. 
uh, and I had written poems which I see which I see now were imitated. And there's nothing wrong with imitating. I mean, after all, visual artists make a practice of learning by, you know, doing imitations, renditions of of, uh, of great works. And I think maybe we ought to try that more often in the poetry world. But unfortunately, at that age, I didn't know that I was imitating. Um, and it wasn't until I came back from two years in the Peace Corps, uh, where I taught at the, what was at the University of what was then Zaire, is now the Congo. And <clears throat> what I found was that the stories as I was telling them, all of the, you know, the exotic things that I had seen um, didn't feel true uh, because I was an American talking to Americans about something that was very foreign to them, but which had become familiar to me. And I was unable in just storytelling to convey the sense that seeing two uh, men uh, walk by on a pole, carrying a pole with a live python, you know, in between them. That, that story to an American, from an American, sounds uh, wild and exotic. And yet I was unable to tell, I was unable to convey the feeling that it was normal, that I had become, for at least those years that I was living there, I had become accustomed to a completely different kind of life. So I started to think about that in terms of poetry, and I started to, to write poems, um, not just in my own voice, but in the voice of historical figures whom I adopted, most notably Roger Casement, who uh, was a, a hero of the Easter Rebellion of 1916, but was also a traveler in Africa, uh, and, a, and a precursor of uh, Conrad's Kurtz, if you remember from Heart of Darkness. Yes, I do. And so I was writing these poems in that voice somehow to, to, to make the exotic quotidian, to make it seem normal and, and everyday. And I think that's when I started to feel like poetry would be the means whereby I did more than just communicate a story or communicate a state of mind, as I said before. Uh, it, it actually reshapes the mind and, 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 and recovers that third dimension, which is lost when you commit something to the page, you know, a page is a two-dimensional uh, field. And, and a poem, in some way, in brevity, has to recreate that third dimension. A novel does it by immersing us in the uninterrupted dream. It's length alone, it's girth. Uh, it's imaginative power comes from uh, the, uh, as Henry James is the uninterrupted dream, but poems need to do that uh, in with brevity. It needs poems need to to somehow aspire or evoke the girth of a novel, uh, even within a, a few lines. You know, as Blake says, you know, to see infinity in a blade of sand, eternity in an hour. It's that radical, systematic distortion of scale that poetry, I think, is the uh, uh, poetry needs for, for it to truly convey its power. Wow. So that was kind of rambling there, E.W. I'm not sure if I no, answered that, you did. that question. <laughs> you did. A wonderful answer. I'm going on and on here. 
Well, you know, you're a man of words, and uh, I, I appreciate the way you're describing. It. Now, I want I want to ask you about how you then take this passion, this this uh, this sort of in a, in a way a mission, and and, and bring it to your students how do you help them understand the poet that they are or could be um the, in in any class uh, you know I, I feel that uh, for adults you know cl- when i think you know college students the first thing that has to happen is you got to peel away the, the the layer of distaste which has been um, uh, placed over them has been slimed over them by uh, two things: by by adolescence and by high school uh, experience with poetry. My own high school experience with poetry too. I mean, you know, uh, uh, what is it that old Peanuts uh, uh, cartoon? Charlie Brown asks, uh, "Well, how do you know if you like a poem?" And Lucy says, "Don't worry, somebody tells you." <laughs> and I, in many ways, uh, the experience that my students have when they come to poetry is first an experience that it is somehow encoded and inaccessible and um and somewhat arcane you know it's not part of their lives so the first the step one is to is to make them see that they have been loving poetry in secret for a long long time they just haven't been calling it poetry they've been calling it jokes they've been calling it rock music they've been calling it rap they've been calling it prayer uh they've been calling it uh the higher nonsense whenever a person is experiencing language aesthetically meaning language not as communication but language as stillness and sound and entering again that other dimension you know to make it to make a third dimension out of a flat field. Whenever you're experiencing that, however you're experiencing it, that's a poetic experience. So for my students, I want to reconnect. I don't want to tell them what poetry is. I want to have them reconnected to their own wellsprings of poetry by erasing uh, the boundaries between what we tend to call literary poetry and an aesthetic experience of language, which they all already have. And all they need is permission to access it. And when when um, you are pub- looking to publish someone else's works, how do you know? How do you choose what which poems, which writers you will you will indeed publish? Wow. Well, that's the that's the big enchilada there. <laughs> that's that. Very different, and I, and I tell students this too. You know, I teach courses in literary publishing sometimes, and I tell students, I say, you know, I have two roles or two, you know, kind of postures toward literature, you know, or toward other people in literature, and and one of them is as a teacher. I say, and as a teacher, I'm with you, I'm I'm there. You tell me where you are, and I'm going to come get you. Uh, my commitment is totally to the student. As a publisher, my commitment is not to the work that is sent to me. My commitment is only to the work that I accept. And, uh, and so there's a different, different attitude. In other words, I, whatever students give me, I'm going to, I'm going to try to understand and try to, to work with them to make it as, as uh, much theirs as I can. 
But as an acquisitions editor for Etruscan Press, you know, we're receiving hundreds and hundreds of submissions. Um, and we choose, we do six books a year, uh, and we publish in poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, uh, criticism, and translation. So unlike many literary presses, you know, we're, we're across, we, we publish across many genres, and we do not have uh, rigid boundaries or uh, quotas about which genre we're going to take. So in other words, we, our next season is three books of poems. Another season might be a novel, a memoir, and whatever. So I'm looking at all this material and trying to say, which is better, this memoir or this book of poems? It may seem like apples and oranges, um, <clears throat> but our, my, you know, when you ask how do I choose something, what I'm looking for is that poetic sense, and I, and I uh, uh, equate the poetic sense is what I've been saying about an aesthetic experience of language, uh, a certain kind of distortion, radical distortion of scale for the purpose of showing us true scale and, um, and a kind of richness of, of, of language that I want that to be present to some degree in prose. And I, when I think of prose and poetry, I don't think of separate kinds of conventions, but just two different manifestations of one impulse, you know, and that impulse is to, uh, well, to share our humanity and to experience our humanity more fully. Uh, so how do I choose? Well, uh, I have to be taken by the work. I, you know, the job of a submission for me, the thing that the transformation it has, I have to go from being one who judges to one who is totally immersed. And sometimes that can happen pretty fast. You'd be surprised. I mean, there are poems and, and stories and play and, and uh, novels that right away just draw you in and, you, and, and they make you believe. They make you believe in their world. Uh, so that's, that's kind of, I know that's, that's not very, uh, it's, it's not very tangible what I'm saying, EW, but uh, it's also, it's very hard to describe because really what I'm looking for is something that I, that I can't describe. I'm looking to be surprised. Oh, that's, I totally understand where you're coming from. Thank you for the insight. Again, ladies and gentlemen, we're talking to Philip Brady, acclaimed poet, and also the executive director of Etruscan Press and a professor. Uh, we, we're uh, happy to have you on the program. I want to we have a, a few more minutes. I want to give you an opportunity to to share some contact information if people want to uh, see what you're you're doing and check out some of your work. Certainly. Well, I have a website, EW. It's uh, www.philipbrady.com. That's one L, so P H I L I P B R A D Y dot com. Uh, Etruscan has a website, Etruscan Press, E T R U S C A N P R E S S. Org. Um, you can look up our band on Facebook. Um, we just did a, a new CD called The Minstrel Boy Comes Home with uh, songs uh, that are taken from poems by, by, by Yates, by Thomas Moore, and others, all done with original music by our band leader, Steve Reese. Uh, so those are some contact points. Uh, and do you have any books that you're working on of your own? 
soon to be published? I, as you, my last book was from Broadstone, uh, The Fact with the Ethiopians. And you asked earlier, you know, what kind of work I, how I, uh, uh, how I work. Well, I think there's always three things I'm trying to do, whatever I'm working on, you know. One is that is to is to make that that line into a song to have that that singing line. Um, another is to tell a story, and the third is to uh, convey what I've learned from others in my own work. So sometimes that takes the uh, form of essays, and that's what I'm doing right now. I'm working on a book um, called uh, Phantom Signs. And uh, it's called, the, the subtitle is The Muse in Universe City. That's two words, but obviously university, but universe city. And they're essays having to do with some of the things that we're, we've been talking about now. And I like writing essays because I find that they're very human and conversational. And there's other people at the table, it feels like, with, with, with essays. Um, when, I'm, when I was working on To Banquet with the Ethiopians, um, that felt great because I got to experience two states of mind. I was writing chapters, whole chapters, 18 verse chapters. And, you know, it's a fairly long thing. And you begin a verse chapter and you'd feel really dumb. Because <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you didn't know where you were do- going or what you were doing. It just felt helpless and stupid. And uh, I, But I was writing it, what, for me, it was a fever pitch. I was writing it almost once a month, one, one of these a month. And by the end of the month, I had become so smart, I couldn't stand myself. <laughs> um, and, and, to, and that's what I liked about writing a long verse poem, uh, a long verse uh, uh, structure, because I could see that process. You know, when you're writing lyric poems, yeah, that same thing happens, but it doesn't seem to happen as regularly for me. Uh, you know, I, you write, if you if you write a poem uh, that that ends, well, then that's the end of that, and you got to go on to the other. And I loved writing the long verse um, poem because it was able to I was able to use lines and tell stories, and also to convey knowledge because the poem is based largely on the first encounter with the alphabet by Homer. I love it, and. Um that new book of essays when when do you think that'll be out i'm just i'm i'm sitting here putting the touches to it now and i'm i will uh i'm re- i'm just about ready to send it out excellent so good luck. i'll you know check out some some of my fellow publishers <laughs> and see who's willing to take a chance and uh i i two more things we're, we're just about run, run out, running out of time here um some some insight to share with fellow writers and and then let's go out with one of your own pieces um insights for other other writers well you know my my first thought is that uh what i've most enjoyed is increasing our level of community through sharing you know whether that's through publishing or teaching going to readings, being at readings. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I've, I've enjoyed that enormously because writing is ultimately pretty isolating. Uh, and it can feel to some extent like you're not accomplishing very much. Um, but when you go out and share with others, I think you have that. And I'll be, I'll be happy to end with uh, a, uh, a, a cutting from a chapter of uh, To Banquet with the Ethiopians. 
um, where we actually meet Homer first encountering and unpackaging this new technology which he has come upon. Of course, I'm making this up. This is imaginative reconstruction. This thing called the alphabet. And he says, and that is how it must have been the morning after the night of the naked burning girl, when Homer, dazed with longing and lost love, tore open the package, and his house went silent, and his marble eyes opened on a strange horizon. The alphabet. Awkward at first, stuttering so the stylus could keep up. The process. Transcription, the manual called it. Taxed, but soothed, too. Nothing like entrancement when each utterance dervished through his rocking torso. No rapture with the alphabet. His loins remained cool, his mouth moist. Triangles, rhomboids, circles and half circles hardened into stanzas, passages. Finally, he stepped back from the work desk and squinted at the scarred, translucent scroll. Mm, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for a fantastic conversation. Poet Philip Brady on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. I look forward to future work of yours. Thank you very much, E.W. I've enjoyed it immensely. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Drums, please! The groove slightly transformed Just a bit of a break from the norm Just a little something to break the monotony Of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance? Give me a soft, subtle mix And if it ain't broke, then don't try to fix it And think of the summers of the past Adjust the bass and let the alpine blast Pop in my CD and let me run around and put your car on cruise and lay back cause it's summertime. School is out and it's sort of a buzz. Back then I didn't really know what it was But now I see what habit is The way that people respond to summer madness The weather is hot and girls are dressing less And checking out the fellas to tell them who's best Riding around in your Jeep or your Benzos Or in your Nissan sitting on Lorenzo's Back in Philly we be out in the park A place called the Plateau is where everybody go Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise Honking at the honey in front of you with the light eyes she turn around and see what you beeping at It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac And with a pen and pad I compose this rhyme To hit you and to get you equipped for the summertime Yet, hustle to the mall to get me a short set 
but I need a new pair Cause basketball courts in the summer got girls there The temperature's about 88 Hop in the water plug, just for old time's sake Break to your crib, change your clothes once more Cause you're invited to a barbecue to start at four Sitting with your friends as y'all reminisce About the days growing up and the first person you kiss And as I think back makes me wonder how The smell from a grill can spark up nostalgia All the kids playing out front Little boys messing around with the girls playing double dutch While the DJ spinning a tune as the old folks dance at your family reunion then six o'clock rolls around You just finished wiping your car down It's time to cruise So you go to the summertime Hang out, it looks like a car show Everybody come looking real fine Fresh from the barbershop Applying the beauty salon Every moment fronting and maxing Chilling in the car They spend all day waxing Leaning to the side But you can't speed through Two miles an hour So everybody sees you there's an air of love and of happiness And this is the Fresh Prince's new definition of summer madness The Librarian. Ours was not an especially book-filled house. My mother liked to read, and we had popular paperback thrillers, mysteries, and bestsellers on our one bookshelf, as well as tales of the Mary Noel Father's harrowing missionary experiences in godless communist China, and my brother's forays into occult and prophecy like Hal Lindsey's The Late Great Planet Earth. We subscribed to magazines like Life and Look, so we were as literate as our working-class Catholic neighbors. And my mother took me on regular visits to our neighborhood branch library. In those days, each neighborhood had its own branch, all but one long gone. Our south side branch was on a main drag that seemed run down even before it was actually run down. The building has since variously housed a smoke shop and a barber shop, and a bodega. The library was a small storefront and probably didn't have much of a selection, but it was enough for the blue-collar citizens it served, and it was enough for my mother and me. It had on its shelves, for example, Dr. Seuss's Thidwick, the Big-Hearted Moose. It was about a kind moose named Thidwick who shelters all manner of creatures in his antlers, taken advantage of for his very big-heartedness. Thidwick ends up okay, the creatures not so much. The story of the moose moved me as I sat on the grimy carpet of the library while my mother decided if the latest Jacqueline Suzanne was racy enough to merit taking home. Then there was the bookmobile that roamed the neighborhoods, dispensing printed pleasure and wisdom to those who couldn't or wouldn't make the trek to the branches or downtown. It showed up in a church parking lot, say, and hovered like a beacon, trying to shame us to spend less time with Gilligan's Island and more with the Swiss family Robinson. Most of us handily resisted the shaming. The lone aisle in the bookstore was narrow, and the book barge cramped and musty. I was never a big fan or user, 
I like the idea of a roving library more than the actual experience. You would never see a bookmobile in godless communist China. Of course, the best place to browse books was the main branch downtown. Built in 1893, it's an imposing chateau-style structure with stained-glass windows. It has nooks and crannies where you could crouch down between the shelves and lose yourself for hours, dizzy from the dust, suffering pins and needles in your feet if you spend too much time kneeling at a bottom shelf. One day I pulled the paperback of that championship season from the drama section. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning play by Jason Miller, our hometown hero. I read it before I saw it produced, and discovering his play in print was a revelation. Stumbling on Breakfast of Champions had a similar life-altering charge. An impatient friend dragged me out of the library on a freezing winter day, and as we drove around to the back of his older brother's friends, fathers, and pala, I cradled the plastic-covered, hardcover Vonnegut as swaggering teens cursed, cigarette smoke swirled, and the eight-track player cathunked at the end of side one of a Mata Hoople tape. In high school, I joined the library club, possibly the lowest status club in our small Catholic school. Prestige was granted, as always, to the athletes whose cachet was only a few notches below the man on the crucifixes on the walls of our classrooms. Our geeky band persevered, stacking shelves and attending to other important library matters under the guidance of Mrs. Malloy, our school librarian. She was one half of a librarian couple. Her husband headed the public library downtown, and she heroically attempted to coax semi-barbarian high school students to pick up a book and read. She was a beam of intellectual curiosity in the anti-intellectual atmosphere of a parochial school. As part of my sacred duties, I manned the circulation desk, checking out rarely read tomes to non-readers with a term paper to plagiarize on deadline. Perhaps there was a keg party in the woods that night and a history paper to knock off. I also signed in all the magazines, and back then we had a lot of magazines. I had no greater pleasure than date-stamping copies of Time and Newsweek and then seeing what Richard Schickel had to say about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Mrs. Malloy herself had the greatest effect on me, though. She gave me Catcher in the Rye and changed my life for good and for the better. She was kind and supportive and treated all of us like rational adults with minds to spark and opinions to respect. She had no children of her own. She and her husband had cats. And I assume, perhaps presumptuously, that many of the students passing through the library doors on their potholed path to adulthood were, in a sense, her lucky stepchildren. Decades after high school, I ran into Mrs. Malloy in a McDonald's. Her husband was in the early stages of dementia. All those thousands of books he once catalogued in his head vanished. Mrs. Malloy was blue that day, sadly wondering what her life amounted to 
as her husband smiled benignly and sipped his coffee. Did it matter? she asked. It did, Mrs. Malloy. It did. When the little blue bird who has never said a word starts to sing spring, spring. When the little blue bell in the bottom of the dell starts to ring, ding, ding. When the little blue clerk in the middle of his work starts a tune to the moon up above. It is nature, that's all. Simply telling us to fall in love And that's why Birds do it, bees do it Even educated fleas do it Let's do it, let's fall in love In Spain the best upper sets do it Lithuanians and let's do it, let's do it, let's fall in love. The Dutch in old Amsterdam do it, not to mention the Finns. Folks in Siam do it, think of Siamese twins, some Argentines without means do it people say in boston even beans do it let's do it let's fall in love romantic sponges they say do it oysters down in oyster bay do it let's Clams against their wish, do it. Even lazy jellyfish, do it. Let's do it, let's fall in love. Electric eels, I might add, do it. Though it shocks them, I know. Why ask if Shad do it? Way to bring me shad row in shallow shoals English souls do it Goldfish in the privacy of bowls do it Let's do it, let's fall in love Porno stunt All is well on the western front You wonderfully beautiful, delicious I chose not to say it, but love it nonetheless. The sweet smell as she lays down and lifts toward her navel that soft summer dress.
there you have it, episode 234 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. Let's thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, acclaimed poet Philip Brady. Thank you so much, sir, for having a wonderful conversation. I'd also like to thank my associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, also known as Uncle Cesare. Thank you for a wonderful essay and for all the essays this season. Looking forward to more next season. I'd like to also thank these musical guests, Jimi Hendrix, Charles Bradley, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Cole Porter, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. Until next time, which will be September, enjoy August. We'll be back in September with episode 235. Take care. <laughs>